The theme has been how do we think differently about health and medicine and technology and their convergence? How might we sort of reimagine the near future and the distant future of, of healthcare? Daniel Kraft is a physician and an inventor who wants to transform healthcare. Well, the term exponential is usually uh, referred to think about the pace of of change. So most of us know, you know, linear thinking, one, two, three, four, five, exponential thinking is when you double every step, two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, et cetera. So by 15 steps, you're about 32,000, but by your 30th exponential step, you're at a billion. That's, that would be if you were taking a step above a meter, that's 26 times around the planet. And that's usually uh, something hard for our brains to kind of grok how quickly technologies can accelerate. The, the one most folks are familiar with our Moore's law, which is why our, you know, our Supercomputers in our pocket are, are are pretty incredible in terms of what they're able to do. They're better than a crazy supercomputer by many orders of magnitude. This is my antique iPhone 2 from 11 years ago. When 11 years ago, it seemed amazing, and now it still works. It feels slow and clunky and, and low-resolution camera. And in you know, 10 years, my iPhone 11 will feel slow and clunky or be embedded in my you know, Apple AR glasses. So you know, a part of the theme of exponential medicine in general is not about any one technology accelerating from not just digital and Moore's law and computation, but what's happening in synthetic biology and low cost genomics to big data and AI and nanotech and uh, virtual reality. Some of them are just moving quickly. Uh, some of them are moving exponentially. The most exciting part, which I love to kind of curate is the convergence. When you mash things up that are getting faster, cheaper, better, how do you use those to reformat how we do virtualized care, uh, cancer diagnostics or contact tracing? Um, and so that, that's a bit of the theme. It's not just about pure exponentials, but getting people to think a couple clicks of Moore's law forward, because that has huge implications about how we want to set up our healthcare systems for today and, and what's coming next. You mentioned the term convergence. So I'm assuming that an important part of this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the bringing together of folks from different uh, medical disciplines. Is that, would that be an accurate way of describing it? Yeah, absolutely. What I sort of found out when we were starting exponential medicine 10 years ago was that you know most medical, I'm trained as an oncologist, hematology, oncology. I'll go to the ASH, American Society of Hematology meetings, and the cardiologists go to American Cardi Cardiology, and the gastro folks go, and the pharma folks go. Things get very, very siloed. And it's very rare that you bring clinicians and researchers and technologists and investors and patients and nurses and healthcare administrators together to kind of go, wow, what, what really is cutting edge? Um, what's happening now? Because many folks have no clue what's already here, let alone what's coming. And, and again, that sort of blending. And also at Exponential Medicine, we've had like, you know, I think last year, 45 countries. So a lot of things happen asynchronously in different parts of the world. And we can learn from things that are happening in the NHS or Israel or China or even Latin America or and vice versa and cross catalyze uh, and sort of open up the thinking uh, and mindsets as well. It's not often about the technology. It's how we blend those with incentives and they often misaligned incentives in the healthcare systems around the planet. If we go to a hospital today, the bastions of traditional medicine, a patient comes in and is seen by the oncologist and then various specialties, it seems to me that we already have that blending. So how is what you're describing different from what's taking place now everywhere? Well, what takes us place today most everywhere is not really health care or the care side. It's really the sick side of the equation, sick care. 
And that's sort of based on our traditional model where you go to see the oncologist or your doctor in the primary care clinic or God forbid the emergency room or intensive care unit. That's where care happens. That's where your data is collected, whether it's your vital signs or your labs. Um, so we end up with very intermittent um, uh, uh, reactive sick care. You know, you get the data in a siloed way. The 0.0001% of the time you happen to be seeing a clinician of some sort. And that leads to our reactive system where we wait for the patient to show up with a heart attack or stroke or late stage cancer or the pandemic to arrive. And sort of where that hopefully is starting to shift is now becoming much more uh, levered, starting to leverage some of the more internet of medical things, the connected data, the continuous healthcare exhaust that can be picked up from our wearables and our environments to then be much more proactive to identify problems early, to optimize your uh, health and wellness to diagnose something early or then to manage a disease if you have it, whether it's diabetes or hypertension or, or cancer. So, so as in a meta shift, I think, you know, there's amazing technology and individuals and systems, um, but they're very disparate and the data often is disconnected. And even though we're in this exponential age, the data doesn't talk to each other. Um, it's still stuck on fax machines as a, as a bottleneck. I went to have a cardiac study a few months ago. The only way I could get my results at home was on a CD-ROM. I don't even own a CD-ROM player anymore. So we have a lot of um, old technologies, whether it's a fax machine or CD-ROMs <laughs> uh, and paper forms still in the cogs of our sort of sick care model. Why are we stuck using fax machines and CD-ROMs? Well, there's a, a big layer. I mean, again, some incredible things happening, uh, but often our regulatory and reimbursement rules are stuck in our, our analog age and are just starting to catch up to our digital. Um, you know, how many of us had to, you know, to, to, to fax and sign a, a medical release, get it to the medical records for them to fax it to another hospital. And that might be very time sensitive. There's always HIPAA laws that are well-meaning. They're supposed to be for portability, but they've become overly layered and encumbered in privacy. And I would argue the patient would rather be alive than with their privacy intact. And that's, I've seen many examples where the, the, the fear and the inability to transmit uh, data and information has had dire, dire outcomes or hindered smart innovation. So we definitely need to focus on smart privacy, but sometimes there's an over fear element in that regard and the regulations often um, haven't kept up. Um, so that's why we're still stuck on fax machines because that's the old regs. Uh, and some of that, again, is international standards and some are even state to state in the United States. So lots of challenges to do what we call often interoperability from one medical record system to talk to another, or for your ability to get your chest X-ray or your labs to you in a shareable way where you own your data, can be much more empowered to make sense of that and be more of a co-pilot in your care if you're a patient or if you're a clinician to use this new connected world to gather not just the data, but the actionable information so you can use that and even get paid for it, aligning the incentives to use some of these new technologies to really amplify and improve what's called you know, value-based outcomes, where you pay for uh, outcomes when they're better. The drug, the app, the digiceutical, the, the, the gene therapy are increasingly only going to get paid for when they work. So it's about the technology, also in aligning incentives. That means follow the money in most, most cases. You have this conference that you've been running for a number of years now entitled Exponential Medicine, and you bring together a very interesting cast of participants. What's the, what's the underlying uh, decision set of decisions that you're making in terms of how you bring these folks together, and how does this relate to what you were just describing? 
I think I'm fortunate I live here in Silicon Valley, despite our current fires and earthquake risk, uh, uh, to see a lot of things hopefully a little bit early, whether that's next generation VR or 3D printing or in travels around the world when we used to travel, bump into very interesting people, technologies and ideas. And my favorite thing in terms of curating exponential medicine, and if you go to exponentialmedicine.com uh, slash videos, you can see a tremendous array of, of amazing thought leaders and technologies and ideas. But often it's finding the not the obvious folks, not the folks who are famous scientists or uh, investors or technologists, but to find things that are a little bit early. Um, you know, one example of a technology that's at the convergence of exponentials is, and I have it over here, is, is, is virtual and augmented reality. I've got my, you know, my Oculus Quest here that some of you might have at home now. You know, incredible amounts of technology for $300, $400. Um, and you know that starts as a gaming platform, and it's wonderful for gaming. I'm actually doing. I've done 100 days straight of VR-based exercise, as an aside. But um, a few years ago, I met a young surgeon uh, who built the first VR training platform for, for orthopedic surgeons. And you go into the VR headset, and you're now in the operating room, and with the actual instruments from a, from Stryker or a different uh, company, you can practice a procedure, whether you're an orthopedic surgeon or or not, and learn how to do that. And just like a flight simulator. Uh, for pilots, and I'm a pilot as well, uh, you know, you can train for very difficult circumstances, bad weather, bad outcomes. And, you know, that you're seeing that early and bringing that to the stage, you know, four years ago, now it becomes sort of obvious. And that company is advanced called Oso VR to the point where they've now done, you know, randomized trials showing patients training on VR or physicians training on VR get much better, much faster with better outcomes. So it's finding things a bit early and then also showing examples that are not always traditional medicine, you know, things that are outside of the norm to some degree, like psychedelics being used uh, for treating PTSD or end-of-life care. And that's going through MAPS, going through phase three clinical trials uh, with dramatic inputs. So those are fun. We also blend in, you know, music and art and uh, everything from mindfulness, which relates to neuroscience, to, um, to, um, to music, to chocolate shaman ceremony. So we get people a little bit out of their usual headspace. And that's where some of the interesting blending and, and connections happen outside of your usual button-down kind of conference. As I was looking at the attendee list for, from some of the past years, I found it striking that you have, among those folks, senior executives from traditional healthcare, as well as senior execs from major pharma companies. And given the state of healthcare today, how, how can we start to integrate the things you're describing into our healthcare system? It seems like an enormous gap and pretty hard to do. Yeah, well, particularly in the United States, there's no one healthcare system. There's thousands of types of systems, many of which are designed differently. And, and some are sort of aligned as a payer player. I mean, a, a Kaiser or a Geisinger or a VA, you know, the clinicians there or the system is is not uh, paid per procedure or per admission. They're aligned with hopefully being proactive and preventative. Um, and big healthcare systems often, just like big companies, often have trouble sort of innovating, innovating at scale. So one of the nice things about coming to exponential medicine or getting in the mix is, you know, it opens your mind to what's here or what's coming. And, and often, again, it's not about the technology, but how you integrate it in design thinking, how you might redesign your clinic. So the waiting rooms, the patient stays in one room, the, the, the medical team comes to them. How you think about uh, the design elements of how you communicate differently to a baby boomer versus a millennial um, and learning from others. And so uh, when you're coming from big pharma, especially those are big ships and slow to move. 
no one wants to be the disruptee. You want to be the disruptor. No one wants to be the next Kodak or Blockbuster. So if we always overuse the phrase, you want to, you know, Uber yourself before you get Kodak. And we sort of hope, hopefully open the eyes and sometimes scare folks a bit. Like, wow, if we don't get ahead of the curve here or start thinking a little more proactively and innovatively, um, we're going to be left in the dust by the next generation uh, payment models or virtualized care systems, et cetera. Um, so it's often a challenge for people to get out of their silos. Uh, and that's what we try and do is, is uh, break open the silos and connect the dots. When you're speaking with, again, senior folks, decision makers, innovators from traditional medicine and healthcare and pharma, what's the reception that they have to the things that you're describing? Sometimes it's a bit of shock and awe, like, oh my gosh, we're behind the curve. Others are trying to do things and they, you have like a chief innovation officer or someone who's very forward thinking inside of a larger organization, and it's hard to bring their folks along. Um, you know, back to the Kodak example, Kodak invented digital photography. It's invented there, but they didn't want to cut into the film sales because maybe the VP of film was going to blocking things out. So sometimes it's a matter of sparking, you know, leadership inside of a traditional organization and getting them to think about how do you accelerate some of these things internally with their five or 10 year plan. Cause if you're doing your 10 year plan with the mindset of 2020 and not thinking about where AI and robotics and 3d printing and nanotech and genomics and crowdsourcing are going to be, you know, you're not going to be making a very good plan uh, and plans change, but you need to be somewhat um, again, not on the linear track with the exponential. Um, so I think sometimes it spurs some new thinking. A lot of the cross fertilization that happens, we've had the head of innovation from the national health service come for several years. He got spooled up and built a young entrepreneur physician or clinician program in the UK. And that started a bunch of their docs and clinicians starting to go, wow, here's a problem. I might be able to solve that and then roll that out at the scale of the NHS. So part of what I, I love about experimental medicine is it's catalyzed a lot of next generation innovations that I don't even know about all of them. And part of it, again, is about understanding technology, where it's heading, their convergence, what's possible today and what's, what's coming next and how to see a pain point and, and solve for that not just with what's in your pocket today, but what you'll be able to do with next-gen systems. And those next-generation systems are, are coming quickly. So are we talking then about healthcare, technology, or business disruption? I think it's a bit of all of it, right? And it's also uh, psychology. You know, again, moving the cheese is sometimes hard. You know, uh, if you create a new app or service or platform that... Uh, a good example might be, you know, virtualized angiograms where you can now do a, a 30 second CT scan, send the data to the cloud, it'll reconstruct your coronary blood vessels. Uh, it's gone through the FDA, et cetera, a company called HeartFlow. But is that going to be exciting to the uh, interventional cardiologist who gets paid to do those procedures or the hospital itself that makes a lot of money from doing diagnostics in the, in the cath lab? Um, so that's a business model meets technology meets mindset. Um, I, I think uh, it's, it's a blend of all those. And, and frankly, you know, the old models of healthcare were, you know, medical devices and sort of drugs. And now in the last decade or so, we have, you know, uh, you know, AI-based drug discovery. We have robotic surgery. We have digiceuticals. We have virtualized care. We have fields that have built at the interface that didn't even exist in some cases 10 or 20 years ago. And so it's business models meets uh, innovation. And then the, 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 where the money hits the road, how do you pay for these things? Because there's a lot of great apps, devices, platforms, gene therapies that just don't get ever out, out the gate because of, of misaligned incentives. So from that standpoint, this is really not much different than any other business innovation problem where you're looking at disruptive technologies and trying to figure out how do we bring those into the market? 
except that you've now got the added layers of, you know, lives are at stake and it's not like you just ship a new software version or uh, print a new widget. Uh, you've got to go through regulatory and to their credit, the FDA is now been getting out of their linear mindset. Uh, we've had Bakul Patel, head of digital for FDA, come to Expression Medicine several times and through workshops and other outside elements go, well, what's coming and how do they now build a software as a medical device platform for speeding up how you might think about, you know, the app controlling your insulin pump using AI machine learning or a pre-check platform to kind of, if you're a well-established startup or company, you don't have to go through every hoop every single time and, and send in PDF books of, of, of your, of your, of your trials. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's about bringing all these folks together, including the patient population, a lot of innovation. We call it, my friend, Lucy in England calls it patients included or nurses included. You need to bring off in the caregivers and the patients who are the need knowers when you're solving a problem. When I was a, a fellow at Stanford, uh, in hematology, oncology, and bone marrow transplant, I was part of the very first year of a program called Stanford Biodesign, which brings together medical folks and engineering and law. And the first third of the year, you're just looking for problems to solve and really understanding them because many folks will build it and no one's going to come because it doesn't work with a nurse or fit into the medical record system or the payment model. And so uh, for anybody out there, many of you are non-medical, you've got incredible skills and in platforms in blockchain or gaming or design or uh, IT or apps that may have never been applied to healthcare. But if you find a pain point, and particularly when you collaborate with clinicians and patients and caregivers, a lot of things can move uh, quickly. But you also have to understand and engage the, the regulatory process at the same time. So it's bringing together of the, the technology, addressing the economic aspects addressing the patient experience, the, regu the regulatory aspects, the business model aspects. And these are the kind of building blocks, could we say, for driving healthcare change, essentially. Right. And all those are moving parts. I mean, now we're in the setting of, of COVID. We're speaking now in August of 2020. Uh, a lot of things have been catalyzed in, in sometimes good ways by the COVID pandemic. Uh, in terms of, you know, virtualized care is an obvious one. And I think in April of 2020, the number of virtual visits went up like a thousand percent and maybe come down a bit. But now uh, because HIPAA got relaxed, so you could do Zoom-based uh, virtualized calls that weren't against the law and reimbursement models matched so you could get paid to do a virtual visit, those have exploded and the, the genie's out of the bottle. Um, and I don't think it's ever going to go completely back in because now we're able to see the value of not just, not just a Zoom call for, for business, but in many cases, for a clinical encounter, because you don't often need to lay on hands for every follow-up visit, or the ability to add connected devices to the future virtual visit. So it's not just the doctor or nurse on the screen. They, you can look at your Fitbit or your Apple Watch data or your connected stethoscope or home ultrasound and use that as part of your care, or asynchronous chatbots, which can do early triage, whether it's, you know, is that cough related to COVID or, or the flu? or bring in home diagnostic platforms that can do labs or use your voice to diagnose uh, conditions. So lots of things are converging and being accelerated as um, a bit of the silver lining, as well as the speed and pace of taking all this data and moving it from data to information, actionable information, and then narrowing the gap from knowing that actual information to the, to the clinic. Like how do you manage a sick COVID patient in the intensive care unit? Lessons from Wuhan, China, and from Italy inform the ICUs in New York City and now distributed across the U.S. and the world. So there's an acceleration of collaboration as well because uh, it often is a long journey between something uh, becoming known and being standard of care. The other day, I was party to a conversation between two physicians discussing a patient, 
And they, and one physician said to the other, oh yes, you know, I have to get this information. A question was asked, I have to get this information. And she was looking through the chart and couldn't really find it. And the other physician said, oh yeah, I, I also prefer the paper records. And the first physician said, yeah, you know, well, that's what I've, I'm used to using. That's a great example in that, you know, I, I'm sort of that digital, bridging the digital divide. I, you know, I got my first mobile phone when I was a medical resident. You know, I, I grew up, uh, we didn't have Twitter or Facebook or, or uh, uh, you know, email when I was an undergraduate. Um, and now you have, you know, folks graduating medical school who, who completely grew up on, on all these platforms. And yes, there are some benefits to just looking through paper chart. I started in paper charts and then you go to digital and that has pluses and minuses. Um, you know, one, a, a great example, Dr. Bob Wachter, who chairs medicine at UCSF, gives a great example of when, when I trained and his old in past year, you go to radiology rounds, you go to the radiologist with the whole team and you look at the slot, the actual physical x-rays, you put them on the, on the, on the light board and you look at them, you have a discussion. Now in the digital age, you can look at your x-rays on your mobile phone or a computer and you miss that sort of interaction piece. So there's something that changes in, in the sort of element of interaction and, and sometimes um, solving problems. Then there's the issue of you can digitize a medical record. And uh, unfortunately, that's what the problem is with our EMRs, things like Epic and Cerner or Allscripts. You know, they've become basically digital versions of, a, of a, a long list of what used to be written by hand, and they don't really add to your cognition. They can get in the way. Too many clicks. There's burnout from trying to just enter data. And I'm hopeful whatever solution, a lot of these exponential solutions need to be integrated into the workflow of the doctor, the nurse, the pharmacist, because there's so much friction, whether it's fax machines or CD-ROMs, or just to be able to synthesize. And there's my favorite example that most people kind of get is, you know, 15 years ago, we all used to drive with paper maps. And now you couldn't imagine driving without Google Maps or Waze, where we're crowdsourcing our data, our private speed and location builds the driving map that's hyper-local. And imagine our electronic medical record systems and our personal record systems are building a bit of our own personal Google Map or Waze to take us on our healthcare journey, whether it's for our patients or for ourselves, that is gleaning knowledge from other patients like me or patients like mine on the genomic level, on the sociome level, on the digital exhaust level. So there's a lot of um, challenges to, to make the technology integrate with actual clinical care that goes all the way down to your medical record and eventually using AI, machine learning, et cetera, to really upskill the, the doctor or the nurse or the community health worker to use that at the point of care in much more impactful ways. And, and one of the points of exponential medicine in general is how do we democratize healthcare and improve health equity? Because there's a lot of disparity um, and, and that can be definitely improved um, uh, using something as common as a smartphone. We have a question from Twitter. So exponential medicine isn't just about technology and science, but it's about ways of working. Sometimes people tell the conference, which we have at the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego, when we're in real life on the beach, it's sort of like Burning Man meets a medical conference. Uh, and, and some of it is, how do you, how do you work together uh, out of the usual silos of, of title and rank, uh, all the way to how do you interact at a conference at a silent disco or doing a, uh, a, an unconference where people are sharing things in new ways. So I think we do need new ways of working together. And, and part of that can be facilitated by the sort of connected digital virtual layer. I mean, uh, how in the cancer world, we can now think about doing, um, you know, virtual tumor boards where you might bring the oncologist, the radiologist, uh, the pathologist together, and then also look at the data from their digitized slide and using AI machine learning, uh, have, you know, a, a thousand experts around the table virtually in terms of learned information, um, uh, new ways of, of doing asynchronous care, uh, 
we just did a series with UCSF called Hospital to Home. I like to call it Hospital to Homespital. All these new ways of doing remote patient monitoring. So whether it's an internet of things type medical device or sensor in your underwear band that can track your respiratory rate and your steps and show you if you're getting into trouble from a pneumonia or COVID, uh, you know, how do you connect the dots on that for managing folks outside of the clinical realm? Something else has been obviously catalyzed by COVID. And that means we need, you know, new definitions of who does what, where, and, and when. We have another question from Arsalan Khan. Doctors can benefit greatly from learning technology during their education, but only as an end, not only as an end user, but perhaps even as developers. Why hasn't the education system emphasized this enough? So he's raising the broader question of medical education, which seems like a really important part of this. Medical education has not changed dramatically, maybe a hundred or so years. Uh, things were set up in the early 1900s to hopefully make medical education much more um, regulated, which makes some sense. But we're still picking medical students based on their ability to do well at organic chemistry and physics, <laughs> and not maybe on their ability to, to have engagement and empathy and decision-making and maybe even manage apps and services, because you need your memorization muscles less now than synthesis. Um, potentially going forward. So part of it is who do we select for, for let's say medical school uh, and how do you train them? Not just for 2020, but they're going to be working into 2040, 2050. Um, what skills do you need? How do you use some of these new platforms like virtual reality and augmented reality to vastly accelerate your ability to have a virtual patient in front of you? There's several apps where you can pull up a virtual heart and play with it and learn its anatomy and walk through it and add a heart attack or add a valve problem or add a, a drug to treat it or a medical device. So you can dramatically learn in new forms and even do that collaboratively. Um, so this the opportunity to reinvent continual medical education all the way back to how do we educate clinicians. And again, the ability, I think, to democratize and upskill folks. If you're a nurse in a rural village in Rwanda, you can have, you know, here's one of the little tools is the echo stethoscope. stethoscope. It's a digital stethoscope with an EKG. You can listen to heart sounds and potentially diagnose a heart murmur as good as a highly trained cardiologist. Or blend in, again, the, the virtual coach that can come on your iPad and help you through sewing up a, a tough laceration or be inside the robotic surgeon with surgery with you. So there's lots of ways we can do real-time crowdsourced, you know, not just we talked about like a Waze or Google Maps for patients, but for clinicians as well to be always sort of virtually coached uh, and seeing the map uh, to, a to a path forward clinically. But do clinicians even have the time and anything beyond a very broad abstract interest in patient experience? And, and even to go further, if it's true that, that the body is essentially a, a set of mechanistic equations and chemical reactions, then why do you have this focus on design thinking and patient-centeredness and everything else? Why don't you just train people and force them to learn better? And that'll lead us to better healthcare and life will become simpler. We don't have to worry about all of this other stuff you're talking about. We can always try and learn better. And you know, even how you can do you know, flipped classroom education to gamifying education. There's now video games where you can learn to, uh, you know, as a non-medical person, do a full operation and do a heart transplant. Um, but I think, you know, now there's just so much data. You have your digitome from your wearable devices, like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. And remember, Fitbits have only been out for 11 years. This is pretty new to the point where we can measure almost every element of physiology and behavior from our wearables, our incitables, or our invisibles. Wi-Fi can measure our, our data now. Um, 
that creates exponential data sets, including our genomics, our microbiome, our sociome. And the, the challenge in terms of learning is we can't learn it all. You can't read every paper. The amount of medical information is going up fast. So we need to leverage it's over over buzzwordy AI and machine learning and big data because you know AI is not going to replace a doctor, but the doctor using AI will replace those who don't, or the healthcare system, or the pathology. Pick your favorite specialty or in any field. It's when you blend those together to to give us the best insights. A simple example would be, okay, Michael, you've got let's say let's say you have um, uh, high cholesterol. Normally, I would just pick you know the standard dose of Lipitor, but Hopefully, I could look at your uh, my, your microbiome because that might impact how you absorb Lipitor. I could look at your your genomics from something as simple as twenty three me to look at your pharmacogenomics to know that one like um, Lipitor uh, is not the best drug for you, gives you a high risk of muscle myopathy or, or, or inflammation. We need to skip to simvastatin. Or how do we then combine that, you know, with your blood pressure medicines that are personalized to you? What if we could? You know, 3D print those in a, a single medication so that every morning you take your combined blood pressure med and your statin and the right amount of aspirin for you and even, you know, print that every morning, which is something I'm doing with a new startup called Intellimedicine. So, you know, it's, we need to start to pull this together in ways that um, isn't just learning, but is continually um, learning and, and hopefully surfacing the best information at the point of care for the patient uh, and the system around them. Dr. Rasu Sharesta makes this comment. He says, policy has always been a big catalyst for tectonic shifts in healthcare in the United States. With the elections around the corner, do you see opportunities to exponentially move forward with the right policy catalysts? Yeah, you can't get a lot of this out of the gate we can just look at our current predicament in COVID. Uh, a lot of our challenges in testing, et cetera, were based on bad regulatory or policy decisions that uh, slowed up testing or uh, or other elements. So exponentially changing things might be always difficult in healthcare, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, I'll show my biases that we have a new administration come January that's much more forward thinking, can align what we need to do next in policy to um, reward uh, not just healthcare, but sick care, paying for prevention, uh, for public health, um, thinking about new models. To I, I like the idea I came up with a colleague of mine of a sort of a, a global um, public health corps where you could volunteer just like an EMT or fireman to be your local uh, public health servant and use all these technologies to do contact tracing and address social disparities. Uh, and a lot of that does come from the policy level and who, how we pay for things, you know, at the NIH level, at the NSF level and beyond. So we need smart um, exponential mindsets to shift policy so that these exponential technologies can come together and really shift things because we have so much room to go. I mean, we spend more per capita in the United States per, per individual and have, you know, 20th in terms of lifespan. So we have a long way to go to align our technologies and our capabilities. And that requires leadership and smart policy. And we have another question from Twitter. You can see I prioritize the questions from Twitter over my own. Very often the questions from Twitter are better than the ones that I have because they're from practitioners in the field, such as Shauna Butler RN. And Shauna says, how is exponential medicine catalyzing cross-disciplinary teams and making health innovation a team sport that has a variety of new and unexpected players? And she also is asking, how are we innovating for the quote, bottom billion that don't have access to high-tech healthcare? So two questions, the cross-disciplinary teams and 
innovating to help the remainder of the world that doesn't have access to all of this high tech? You know, it's not just about, you know, traditional you know, doctor or health administrator. We need to, uh, as Sean has proposed, in pro accelerated, you know, nurses being involved, physical therapists, the team element, um, so that we're all, um, you know, upskilling, upskilling the nurse practitioner to do what a primary care doctor did and there's a shortage of primary care docs, um, to being part of innovation, right? Uh, there's several examples of it was started uh, as a maker nurse, where nurses see challenges in the clinic and they solve them with MacGyver systems and now can scale them through 3D printing and democratized platforms, which also leads to democratizing healthcare. You, there's good examples now, uh, uh, you know, a community health worker with a, a $50 or $25 uh, smart tablet can collect data, can do diagnostics, might have a pocket ultrasound or other device that, that, that are coming to market and can can give them ability to interact with the community and, and do smart diagnosis and triage. Uh, and then when they need care, um, it may not need to send them to hundred miles walking to a, the, the city or, or central village. They can mediate some of that with an AI assist or with uh, tele, tele, television, telemedicine type visits. So a tremendous ability to democratize healthcare. And I think that's one of the great potentials of the fact that we all now have smart apps that can integrate our data, show us when we're off track, make us, each is individuals empowered to uh, be on top of our health, not waiting for the problem to happen. Uh, and that can be globalized and can play a key role, you know, prevent in preventing the next pandemic as well. And so that means it's patients included, nurses included, doctors included, all of us can be uh, helping create the future of healthcare. What about things like COVID testing, which has been, you know, the word that came to mind, uh, starts with cluster and ends with something that we probably shouldn't say, although why not? Uh, I will say it, you know, it's been such a clusterfuck. And what can be done about that? I bring that up because it's just such a practical problem that affects every person who's listening. Absolutely. I mean, the key thing to getting on ahead of a pandemic or stopping one is to have uh, smart identification, uh, isolation, and, and in quarantine, et cetera. Uh, contact tracing is the key term, but that's driven by testing. And some of our regulations have slowed down better tests. The ones we have now are often take several days to come back or over $100. So I've been uh, chairing the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance Task Force, and I've worked with uh, Jeff Huber, who's the founder of Grail and started Open COVID Screen. And uh, with the XPRIZE, we've now launched a uh, an XPRIZE for rapid or fast, frequent, cheap, and easy, FFCE, fast, frequent, cheap, and easy. That's the hashtag FFCE. Um, and uh, to be apprised to make tests under $5 in, a, in an hour or less, that can be done multiple times a week at a school or workplace uh, to get us back to normal life and to identify cases when you're asymptomatic. So that's an example of leveraging uh, an innovation prize to get things to move to and scale faster. There are some uh, pretty exciting, fast, frequent, and cheap and easy tests that are coming to market now as well. Um, and that blends with our regulatory needs. So to get out of our cluster, we need to have the ability to do fast, frequent, and cheap and easy testing. You can go to xprize.org slash testing to learn more about the prize. We've had over 450 teams already enter that preliminary uh, uh, registration. And we're going to hopefully then find test the tests and scale the winners very quickly. And that might be, play a role for this pandemic, but hopefully uh, if we need it in next ones to have those sorts of tests uh, molecularly or otherwise spit in a tube, have the result fast and easy. So that's that's critical as part of our cluster. Um, and, and, and part of it, again, is going to be smart uh, public policy funding and mindset. There has been so much attention and resources paid to the problem of testing 
by so many different companies and governments without a lot of, as far as I can see as a layman, a lot of apparent success given how screwed up everything is right now. So why will your approach with the X Prize produce results that are better and faster than just what's going on out there in the marketplace today? Well, prizes can often help speed things up. The very one of the early prizes was to cross the Atlantic, which Lindbergh won. That would incentivize him that open up transatlantic travel. The first X Prize, the Ansari X Prize, uh, was the first rocket to space that was privately done, and that's catalyzed SpaceX and many other endeavors. So part of what it does is, is set some rules out there for fast, frequent, cheap, and easy testing, gets people to compete and then often collaborate. And then we help support the teams from the regulatory perspective, from the scale perspective, from the funding perspective, so that the best tests that meet the criteria can um, accelerate into market and, and get the attention and funding they deserve. So that, you know, if we move up the ability to get 50 million tests in the United States every day up by a month, that will definitely save lives and shorten the, the pandemic and have economic impact. So sometimes it's about aligning, you know, it's a $5 million of prizes. It's not a lot in the big picture, but it gets a lot of people really thinking and motivated. And again, often teams combine. I helped come up with the medical tricorder X prize a few years ago. That was one. A lot of teams converged. And now we have, you know, coming to market soon, the equivalent of a medical tricorder to do home-based diagnostics and triage. So it's often about setting audacious but achievable goals and helping speed them up when the market could use a little bit of a, a nudge. We have another question from Barcelona Khan asks, we talk about connected healthcare, but the change has been so difficult since connected means across borders and tech is not the same across different companies, countries. So how do we develop some type of baseline healthcare technology that's available more broadly? And we have challenges even state to state, uh, let alone hospital to hospital. Uh, you know, uh, telehealth is required usually to be licensed in every state you're practicing. And that's, that's hopefully going to get shifted in the United States, let alone different countries. I think we need a baseline of, I like to call it moving from, you know, quantified self where you can collect your heart rate data and your sleep, which is all great to know and can change your personal habits. Um, quantified self to quantified health where our connected data can start to flow to your clinician in, in meaningful ways that aren't overwhelming and integrate with their workflow. Um, I've just been building out a new platform called digital.health. That's the website. It's still very early as a place for eventually clinicians to find and prescribe connected health technologies, whether it's a connected blood pressure cuff or an app to quit smoking or a mindfulness app or, uh, or, uh, diabetes prevention program. Um, but I think we can democratize some of these around the planet and learn. We don't need to keep building lots of widgets. It's a matter of building the ones that work. Um, and building a, a data flow, closing the loop, because most clinicians, we talked about this a bit, don't want to see your heart rate data or every little hookup or sleep information. They want to see the actionable information in a way that integrates in, oh, I've got a thousand patients in my panel. Here's the three that blood pressures or blood sugars are out of whack. We need to call them proactively. Um, and uh, that creates, that needs a lot of smart, um, not just technology, but policy and, uh, you know, folks like Rasu and others building that into their healthcare systems um, for, you know, the nurses, the doctors and patients together. The other day, I had a test denied by my health insurance provider. And I pay these guys, I won't say how much, but it's literally like a couple of over, over oh. a few tens of thousands of dollars a year. I mean, it's insane. And I said to them that I will pursue this to the ends of the earth until the day I die, because I felt I needed this test. And I did. And it took me a long time. And they finally agreed. How is it that this is happening? And what can we do about that? And I realize you're not a healthcare economist, economist, but what do we do? 
Oh, it's so crazy. I mean, uh, even in my own personal and family health, you know, small things, it's just so hard to under, even understand your medical bill, let alone your insurance plan, you know, gold versus blue and what what's reimbursed and not. It's, it's uh, we need health, health education as well as financial education. Um, I think part of what we need to almost think about is it's overused, but the Uberization of healthcare, which is starting to happen, you know, it used to be a hassle to get a taxi and then flag them down and then have a paper receipt. Now it's, you know, connecting the dots between, you know, things that these companies didn't invent, you know, mobile, GPS, online payments. Um, and some of the winners are coming to market are redesigning that experience for you as a, as a insurance member. So it makes it more streamlined uh, that you're not stuck on the phone or looking at faxed reports uh, and, and battling. Um, so I don't know how to, you know, your particular challenge of getting something approved is, 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 is very, very common. And it's so hard to get through all those phone numbers and, and uh, emails to get an answer. I think we need to sort of Uberize that platform. And that means, you know, smarter chatbots, a more a better design to match, you know, you and your personality and, and education rather than one size fits all, but a huge conundrum. Um, and I think the more we can streamline the rails and get rid of the friction in healthcare, uh, the better we can spend time on the actual care part. And a lot of that is not from future technologies, but we have now just putting together in ways that are smart and engaging and, and, and value driving and not crazy making. So getting rid of the friction and that that would require then aligning financial incentives in a way that is completely out of whack today. Well, there's this famous chart, you know, of the number of doctors, let's say, uh, going up, you know, doubling over the last couple of decades, but the number of administrators going up like this, you know, so, you know, you get rid of that friction, you're taking away someone's paycheck because that's how a lot of the, the, the money is made. And so um, companies like Amazon that are famous at getting into healthcare, still with their challenges, are able to sometimes get rid of the middlemen. That's threatening to a lot of providers. We're seeing the, the, the CVSs and Walmarts and others build healthcare hubs at the local pharmacies. That's disruptive because you can get care done at lower prices. And people are going to go where it's easy and where it feels connected and it feels um, that like it's entered the fourth industrial age. You know, how we get our banking done and get our movies is, you know, feels pretty magical. Healthcare skin still stuck on waiting on hold. I even had my own televisit follow-up for a primary care visit, but I still get four phone calls from my local healthcare team to set up the, the, the voice call, little layers that'll get improved. It's starting to happen. And it's all about, again, not being stuck in our old mindsets, thinking at least accelerating things, not just always exponentially and, 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 um, and solving for the actual pain points, not just for a shiny new object or app or, or device or wearable. I love that, solving for the actual pain point. Combine that with patient experience all across the board throughout this, throughout the, the, life, the patient life cycle. And boy, that would sure revolutionize our healthcare system. We're, we're just out of time. Any final thoughts, Daniel, that we haven't spoken about? There's been so much. I wish we did have a few more hours. Any final thoughts? Maybe back to your sort of pain point. You've all experienced pain points, whether it's challenges getting a test approved or tracking uh, your mother's uh, health or medication adherence uh, to better forms of detecting cancer. And many folks listening out there have built incredible technologies and platforms and see their own personal or other problems, whether it's in their own life or their friends and family or business members. And so I think we can all start to work collaboratively. Um, you know, platforms like Exponential Medicine are open to everybody. Um, so it's a team sport. And uh, again, we have a lot of power in our hands to, 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 to reshape things if we align the incentives, the technology, the people, the design, the workflow um, to kind of take healthcare and advance it uh, to where it can be and where it should be. 
And Daniel, what's the best, if, some, if people want to look you up, what's the best URL or the best, best place to find you and learn about your work? Try and put everything at you know, danielcraftmd.net, danielcraftmd.net. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel underscore craft. And if you go to exponentialmedicine.com, sign up for the newsletter or exponentialmedicine.com slash videos. Lots of great content from our prior uh, years. We're hoping to have a virtual XMed, Exponential Medicine, uh, later this fall. Uh, so keep your eye out for that. And we've always live streamed those and made those um, open to everybody because uh, uh, we don't want to have different tiers of access and we want to have a big tent for healthcare uh, catalyzation and, and improvement. All right. I would like to thank Daniel Kraft. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Okay. And everybody watching, thank you for watching and particularly to those folks who asked questions. Before you go, I must ask a favor. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so you can get our most excellent newsletter. Thanks a lot, everybody. We have awesome shows coming up. The fall season is amazing. Check out CXOTalk.com and we'll see you again soon. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.